0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. This episode is sponsored by Spirituality and Health magazine, bringing mindful coverage to topics that include faith, philosophy, meditation, and wellness. Please visit SpiritualityHealth.com to learn more. Today my guest on Insights at the Edge is Ariana Huffington. Ariana is the chair, president, and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post Media Group, a nationally syndicated columnist, and she's the author of 14 books. In May 2005, she launched the Huffington Post, a news and blog site that quickly became one of the most widely read, linked to, and frequently cited media brands on the internet. In 2012, the site won a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. She's been named to the Forbes Most Powerful Women list and the Time 100, Time Magazine's list, of the world's 100 most influential people. Ariana has also written a new book called Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. She's also hosting a series of live events, the first one taking place in New York City, April 24th to the 25th, a third metric live event on redefining success with thought leaders from different fields, including the world of entertainment, fashion, politics, and technology. You can visit thirdmetriclive.com to learn more about this event. And if you're interested as a listener of Insights at the Edge, you can use code ST50 and receive a $50 discount on the ticket price. In this episode of Insights at the Edge... Ariana and I spoke about third-metric living. What might it mean to make well-being, wisdom, and wonder a priority in our life? And the changes that are necessary to do so, particularly in relationship to how we define success and how we relate to technology. We also talked about her sense that we're reaching a critical mass in terms of the mainstream world prioritizing the importance of this third metric. And finally, we talked about how to navigate periods of suffering in our life with attention to gratitude, and how becoming conscious of our death is one of the greatest tools we have for third metric living. Here's my conversation with Ariana Huffington. Ariana, your new book, Thrive, was written in many ways in response to a wake-up call that you received in 2007. To begin our conversation, can you describe for us what was happening in your life at that time, and what was the wake-up call?
1: Thank you. Yes, um, what was happening in my life is that it was two years after founding the Huffington Post, and... um, I was working round the clock, you know, building a business, um fixing our editorial coverage, and also I had two daughters, one of whom was uh, in the process of going through colleges to decide where she was going to apply. And so all that together um meant that um when we got back from the college tour, I was completely exhausted and I woke up in the morning, got to my desk, and uh, collapsed and hit my head on the way down, broke my cheekbone, and got um, four stitches on my right eye. So that was, uh, for me, the beginning of a journey. First of all, from doctor's office to doctor's office to check if there was something really wrong with me medically. But also then when we discovered that what was wrong with me had to do with the way I was living my life, not thankfully, any major medical problem, it started me wanting to redefine what success is because I thought to myself, yes, by conventional definitions of success, I was successful. But by any sane definition of success, I was clearly not successful if I was lying in a pool of blood on the floor of my office.
0: Now, I'm curious because... You then spent quite a bit of time redefining success and bringing these elements in that you talk about as the third metric, and we'll talk about that some, well-being, wisdom, wonder, giving, this different way of living. But I'm curious, do you think that the Huffington Post could have been launched those first two years where you say you were working so many hours? At one point, I read you were working 18-hour days. Do you think the Huffington Post could have been launched if you weren't? working that hard?
1: Yes, because it's not a function of how hard we work, but how effective we are. I actually think when I look back at my life, that um, what I achieved would have been uh, um, more effective and achieved with less stress and um, exhaustion and mistakes along the way if I had also taken care of myself in the process because we now have um, conclusive scientific evidence that there is really no trade-off between taking care of ourselves and how effective we are. That, On the contrary, when we get enough sleep, we are less reactive, we are more likely to be able to um, listen to the whisperings, our own intuition, uh, be able to and make better decisions, uh, notice the red flags, all the things that um, leaders and everybody have to do. So I think what you asked is actually one of the major delusions that we need to address in our culture, which is that uh, because people see a lot of very successful uh, men and women who have sacrificed a lot in terms of their own well-being, relationships, life, that this is the way to do it. And we need different role models. We need to publicize people who are doing it differently by integrating what I call the third metric. These are the four pillars of success, you know, well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving.
0: Ariana, as the president and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post Media Group, how many hours do you work now in your role?
1: What The most important thing is not how many hours I work, but how many hours I sleep. <laughs> because that was for me was the, the major habit I changed. I went from four to five hours to seven to eight hours. And that has, had, has been transformational because it means when I wake up, I'm actually rested, recharged, ready to be fully present um, in my day. So... However many hours I work each day, and it varies, um, because now two days are the same, what matters is that I'm fully present for that time.
0: Now, it's interesting that you brought up sleep here in our conversation so early on, because in reading your book, Thrive, you actually talk quite a bit about sleep, and you call it the most powerful keystone habit in your life. Powerful keystone habit. I think that's interesting.
1: Yes, for me that's the most powerful keystone habit, you know. Everybody has their own keystone habits and um by which we mean one important habit that when we change everything else is easier to change. Mine was sleep. Um so, you know, yours might be something else. But what is important is to um, to make that one fundamental change and then notice how much easier everything else becomes.
0: And can you tell me how you changed your relationship to sleep? What actual changes you had to make in your life to get eight hours of sleep?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, the first thing was to look at when I had to start my day. And then often it meant saying no to things that I might want to do the night before so that I can get my eight hours and it also meant, if, say, for some reason I couldn't, as it often happens in our lives, that I prioritized having a nap. And, in fact, at the Huffington Post, we have two nap rooms. Um, and that has been amazing because, at first, it was really hard for people to accept that it was okay to be seen walking into a nap room, but now they are perpetually full and we're looking for um a third one. And also what I think has been great is to, to change the workplace so that what is stigmatized is walking around like a zombie like then, rather than being seen walking into a nap room.
0: Mm-hmm. What is a nap room like? Is it a place just for one person to nap, or do we get to nap with our coworkers?
1: <laughs> um, one, one nap room has uh, two places. You know, a nap pod, you know, this kind of futuristic-looking place, things, and a long uh, chaise. And the other one is more conventional. It has, like, a bed.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Okay, Ariana. You know, you're talking about getting a good night's sleep instead of how many hours that you work, and that that's really the main important thing for you in your life. And one of the things I'm really curious is have someone like you, who I imagine has so many different demands on your time, thats what I imagine. The news is always breaking. There's always a new deadline. International Huffington Post offices all over the world. How you've come to something that you call time affluence versus time famine. How it is that you don't relate to time as something you don't have enough of on a regular basis?
1: Uh, Well, it's... um it wasn't easy because I, I lived a large part of my life kind of breathlessly. Uh, every time I would look at my watch, it seemed to be later than uh, than I thought or wanted it to be. And I think what changed for me was being really present um, every moment. And uh, you may remember we were together at the Wisdom to Pointeau oh conference and John kabat looked at his watch and said, it's now. And then a minute later, he looked at his watch again and said, it's now again. And the truth is that it's now, now, and it's now in five minutes. And the question is, are we present for this now? And what has helped me a lot is creating pauses and spaces between things, um, stopping and taking two, three deep breaths, two deep inhales and exhales, which reconnect us with ourselves. Um, Or if we're online for something at the supermarket or the movie line, instead of using this to irritate us, kind of using it as as an enforced break that we can actually use to recharge.
0: I understand, you know, taking pauses, and I can see how that's, Helpful. But it still seems when I talk to lots of people who take those pauses, they breathe and spend time relaxing, there's still this sense of I don't have enough time to do all of the things that I feel called to do to be with my family and be with my friends and achieve the goals I have. And I still feel under so much pressure.
1: I think that has a lot to do with. Uh again, how we define our lives and um, what is it that we feel is most important. I love um, a quote that I use in the book from Brian Andreas who said, uh, everything changed in her life the day she realized that she had enough time for all the important things. And I think for me that was the key. Um, Do I have time for all the important things? And, um, and I do, and I think we all do. What uh, creates that breathlessness is all the stuff we're adding to our day.
0: Adding to our day, you mean beyond those most important things? Meaning, yes, including yeah.
1: our addiction to technology. You know, how much time do we spend online or on our social media um, or multitasking instead of be- being fully present in what we're doing?
0: Mhm. So tell me more about this being fully present because I have to say Ariana I experienced this with you. I've only met you twice in person and both times were quite brief. But what I remember was feeling like the light of the sun was shining on me in these very brief interactions that we had, and that you were fully there, and then you excused yourself quite graciously. And I thought, God, how does she do that? She's not irritated. She doesn't seem in a rush. How is she doing that with all of the pressures I perceived you must be under?
1: Well, uh, thank you, first of all. I think it's a a work in progress. I know that when I'm fully present in every encounter, I end my day actually recharged. It's when I'm, I'm scattered, when I'm, I'm trying to, to do more than one thing at a time, that it's exhausting. And they have found now scientific evidence that multitasking, which scientists tell us doesn't exist, it's actually task switching, is one of the most stressful things we can do.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have trained yourself out of multitasking?
1: yes which was very hard for me <laughs> including training myself out of um um walking into my bedroom or walking into a hotel room and immediately turning on the tv mhm
0: mhm well, tell me a little bit about that training process, because, you know, you mentioned people's relationship to technology. And I think for many people, they're multitasking on their iPhone or BlackBerry all the time. And in the book Thrive, you mentioned that the average person's checking their email every six minutes, which comes up to be something like 160 times a day. So how does someone who's addicted to their mobile device train themselves out of that kind of multitasking?
1: Oh, I think it it is a matter of um, of training because when we begin to see the impact it has, um, then it it validates us. Like, for example, when uh, when I stopped immediately turning on the television, at first I was concerned that I would, uh, there I am running a 24-7 media operation, I would miss out on something, but far from it. Um, not only haven't I missed anything, but I've actually... Um, had some silence brought into my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you started seeing the benefits, and then those benefits fed on each other, and then that's what helped you continue?
1: Exactly. When you see the benefits, then um, you have an extra incentive to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. What is your relationship to your mobile device? How do you work with that so that you're not multitasking?
1: Well, obviously, I'm on my mobile device a lot. The question is, I'm not on my mobile device ever once I get into bed because I charge my phones in another room in the house. I think that's terribly important. I mean, there's so much evidence now that if we wake up in the middle of the night and we're going to be tempted to look at our data and that immediately interrupts the recharging nature of sleep. So that's incredibly important. If I mean, we never... Whether I'm having dinner with my daughters or friends, we never look at devices. We never put devices out on the table. I did a digital detox for a week over the holidays. It was wonderful to actually um, not have to Instagram every beautiful sunset or a tweet everything sweet or funny, my daughter said. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Do you ever find yourself, though, like in a dinner where it's not that interesting and you think, I'll just excuse myself, go to the bathroom and check my email and see what's going on in the world? Because really this dinner is not really all that interesting to begin with.
1: Uh, well, I think it's, it's just like some that can become addictive if we don't watch it. You know, there is something very seductive about uh, technology and they make it deliberately seductive. it's not accidental as my friends who are in the tech world tell me. Uh, so we, we like any addiction, you know we need to work at it.
0: Yeah yeah. So Ariana, in talking about the third metric, you're saying that there are these two other metrics that for many people define success which are money and power. and now you're looking at this third metric, which you're saying has to do with our inner life and also the life of well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving. But just for a moment, I want to talk about this second metric of power that for many people think is part of success. I mean, there's the money part, and okay, I need enough money, and people will define whether or not they have a successful relationship with money based on their own life and their needs and their sense of enoughness. But what about power? I'm curious to know how power plays into your own definition of success, how you define it even to begin with.
1: Well, for me, power is about impact. You know, the ability to influence things and, and have a real impact on all the things that matter. Um, and I think that is key because other, other than that, it doesn't have any meaning. Um, And I think generally, as we're moving into an era where leadership is no longer about top-down, but about um, actually being kind of in the center of the circle and uh, and more teamwork and more collaboration, the idea of power as a top-down thing is less and less significant.
0: And I'm curious in this if somebody has a lot of ambition. I'm very ambitious. And sometimes it's my ambition that seems to get in the way of this third metric, well-being and wonder at the world, because I'm so ambitious. But I'm ambitious because I want to have impact. How would you address such a person? Like, What's the right use of ambition?
1: Well, I think ambition... Um, in terms of having dreams and wanting to fulfill them, there's nothing wrong with that. For me, it's all about uh, having proportion restored to disproportion. My mother used to say, what are the things that are in the background of your life? What are the things that are in the foreground? The, The thing that I'm addressing in Thrive is primarily, are we identified with our ambition? Are we identified with our job, with our goals? Or do we realize that we are bigger than all that? You know, um, Oprah asks this question, you know, what do you know for sure? And my answer is, um, what I know for sure is that who we are inside us, who we truly are, is much bigger and more magnificent than anything we are outside in the world, however great that may be.
0: Now, what if somebody says, well... You know, Ariana, it's kind of easy for you to say that because you've achieved so much in terms of the first two metrics, money and power. You know, you you have so much success in those realms, so you can focus on this inner dimension, who we are on the inside. But someone listening says, that's not my experience, and so I need to focus a lot more on those outer things.
1: So I think that's a very valid question, and I address it in the book because it's very important to make it clear that that we are able to tap into our own well-being, wisdom, and sense of wonder and giving, no matter where we are in life. Whether we are struggling to put food on the table or whether we are at the top of the world, uh, that place in us is available to us. And when we tap into it, we are going to be more resilient, and more able to deal with all the challenges and adversities that our life is, is bringing us. I mean, that's why I even quote people in concentration camps. I mean, you can't have anything, you know, more um, extreme than that, or at least few few things in life. And yet we have Viktor Frankl and others who've talked about there were people who remained connected to their essence and remain connected to their loving, which seems a Herculean task to those of us who haven't, you know, had to deal with anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the points that you make in Thrive is that we're actually at this point of change in the culture. You say that we're hitting critical mass in terms of more and more people now in the mainstream, actually being interested in this third metric in our inner life. Do you really think we're hitting critical mass, Ariana? really?
1: Yes, I think if if you look at the world, um, it's almost like a split screen. You know, you have uh, a lot of the world proceeding in the old way with burnout, sleep deprivation, exhaustion, depression, addiction, all the epidemics that we are facing. But you also have more and more people and more and more companies, 35% of, of large and medium-sized companies in the, in the United States, introducing some form of stress reduction. Um, you have um, CEOs in 2013 coming out, not as being gay, but as being meditators. Many of them, like Mark Benioff of Salesforce or, or um, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, Saying that they've been meditating for over 25 years, but somehow they never said it before because meditation, slowing down, all these things were equated with flakiness and new ageiness and the California. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, there, there are big shifts happening.
0: I think part of the reason that I'm quizzical or unclear: Are we really hitting this thing called critical mass? Is here a company like Sounds True? We've been around for almost three decades now, and teaching people breathing, meditation practices, and for the whole course of the company's history, people would say, you know, we're about to hit a breakthrough point. It's going to happen. The tipping point. You know, the world's interconnected. The the hundredth monkey, harmonic Uh convergence, etc. And yet we see a continuation of so much injustice in the world while a small portion of the population does seem to be tuning to their inner life and starting to change their value system. But I want to know what you mean by hitting critical mass in terms of how the world might look different in the next decade or two to come.
1: So... Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like in any transition, um, how you feel about it depends on whether you're focusing on what is dying or on what is being born uh, because we are seeing everything at once. And I think as we are moving into an era where people are realizing that our world is shaped from the inside out, there's going to be a greater prioritizing of that because right now all the signposts and the messages that we get from our culture are all about climbing the ladder, making more money, however much money we may already have. And so now we need to create our own tribes, our own body system, our own uh, rituals to reinforce Uh, regularly reconnecting with our essence. And that's why I'm saying in the book, it doesn't matter what your entry point is or what form your wake-up call takes. It could be something like what happened to me, burnout, it could be sickness, it could be addiction, it could be the loss of a loved one, the ending of a relationship, or it could be a line of poetry that stirs something in us or a scientific study that wakes us up. Whatever it is, I think what is important is to embrace it and begin taking little steps um, to change what we prioritize in our lives.
0: And you see this as something that's going to sweep the population in a very broad way in the years to come?
1: Yes, but how long it's going to take, I don't know. I think all of us working in this field are hoping that in our small ways we can accelerate the shift but it's not in our hands we can do our part and then um and then watch you know the response and um, and what happens
0: now when you say something like it's not in our hands that begs the question of do you have a sense that there is some greater force at work? Is this part of your faith, if you will, as a person? Or, or what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, I definitely believe there is a greater force at work in general. But in this particular instance, what I meant that is, is that you can be offering meditations, I can be writing a book on Thrive, giving speeches, talking to you, but whether people resonate and at what point they resonate is not in our heads.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I want to circle back for a moment, Ariana, because we started by talking about this wake-up call moment in your life when you found yourself so exhausted that you broke your cheekbone and were lying in your own blood. And now we've been talking about this quality of presence and a disciplined relationship to television and technology. And I'm curious, was it really like there was a before the wake-up call and after the wake-up call? Because as the story is being told, it sounds very kind of black and white. And I'm wondering if it really worked that way in your life.
1: It was pretty black and white in terms of the, the prioritizing and um, how important I made these practices. These practices had been part of my life on and off I mean I've been meditating since I was 13 but not consistently I've been going to spiritual retreats I've been um, I did a course in comparative religion in India I mean I was always interested in those dimensions of life I had a mother who lived those dimensions of life so it's not like I was an alien to this world but there's a big difference between um Occasionally integrating this in my life and and working to live my life um from the inside out with these practices being at the heart of what I'm doing and I'm by no means doing this perfectly um, but it's definitely a big priority.
0: in the section of Thrive, when you're talking about wisdom, one of the things that you point out is how investigating death can be a doorway to wisdom. And you talk about how death is the one thing that we all have in common, but that we don't talk about much publicly. And I'm curious how you'd like to see that changed. What kinds of conversations do you think it would be helpful for us to be having about death?
1: Well, first of all, what is um, good to remember is that every philosopher and every religious teacher has talked about the importance of integrating death into our lives. You know, Socrates memorably called it practice death daily. And speaking of uh, a shift in our culture, we now have um, death over dinner uh, events where people come together and literally discuss death and what it means to them over dinner. We have the dinner conversation that, uh, that, sorry, the, um, the conversation that, um, that Ellen Goodman started so that you can discuss with your loved ones how they want to die. Um I write in the book about my mother who wanted to die at home. And when she fell uh, on what turned out to be the day of her death, she was very clear. She did not want us to, to take her to the hospital. And I describe, you know, how, clear she was that at the end of this journey of doctors and hospitals when she was diagnosed with heart disease um, she wanted to be at home and and, I mean often we don't have these conversations so we assume that everybody wants to be in a hospital plugged into the machines and prolonging life often by a few days and um, so This is an important conversation to have, but just as important for me is how integrating death into our lives changes what we prioritize, because right now we're kind of living life pretending that we won't die.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting, as you were talking about business leaders who are coming out of the closet now and saying that they're meditating, so they're not coming out about their sexual life, they're coming out and saying, I'm a meditator, or whatever their inner life is. This idea that the topic of death could come out of the shadows, out of the closet, if you will, and that people could talk about their feelings about it. Why do you think it's so taboo in our culture in general for people to talk about death?
1: Well, because um, the minute we actually integrate death in our life, it seems pretty meaningless. Uh, to just focus on um, how quickly we're going to become an SVP or um, whether we increased market share by one-third as the absolute priorities of our lives. And uh, so I have this section in the book about eulogies. And when you're in a memorial, in a friend's memorial, you realize that nobody ever is eulogized like that. You know, Have you ever heard anybody say, Uh, George increased market share by one-third, or George made a billion dollars. We are always eulogized about the other things, you know, how we made people feel, uh, how we made people laugh, um, small kindnesses, lifelong passions. So it wouldn't be nice to actually live life differently, too?
0: Mm -hmm. So you're saying that part of the reason you think people don't talk more about death is because it would undermine the way that our culture is oriented towards achievement yes, it would change Absolutely.
1: well I mean, uh-huh. you know I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with achievement it's just it's when we shrink ourselves to think that we are these achievements
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know I was just thinking about that because I'm I'm taping Ellen this afternoon
0: uh-huh
1: and uh, and reading um, about her life it's clear you know if she if she had defined herself as the the host of this super successful sitcom, she would never have come out because the biggest priority for her was maintaining her status and maintaining the sitcom. And as she writes, after she came out on her sitcom, the phone didn't ring for three years. It was a different time. <laughs> um, and she was willing to take that risk because she knew that she was not... The host of the sitcom. She was something more and bigger, and if she didn't leave her that truth, then the success, the way the culture defined it, would be pretty meaningless.
0: Now, I heard you interviewed at Wisdom 2.0 a year ago, a year and a half ago, at Wisdom 2.0, a conference that explores technology and wisdom coming together, and the host asked you At the time of your own death, what do you most want to be remembered for? And you gave this really interesting answer. You said at the time of your death, you don't think you'll be looking backward, but you imagine yourself looking forward instead. That answer really got my attention. And I'm curious to know what you think you might be looking forward to. What informed that answer that you gave?
1: Well, the first thing that informed the answer is that um, I believe that we are Um, we are not our bodies, and we are not our achievements in this world. So I have zero interest in my quote-unquote legacy. Um, And I feel that death is a little bit like dropping your rental car and flying. And I would be much more interested in flying and where it takes me. I don't claim to know, but I'm... Fascinated by it, and I definitely would not be reviewing what my rental car did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. One of the points you make in Thrive, in addition to talking about this time in our culture where we're reaching critical mass of interest in the inner life, is that your sense is that we're going through something called a third women's revolution. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, how you see this third women's revolution.
1: So if we look at the first women's revolution being about getting us the vote and the second women's revolution being about um, getting us access to all jobs and the top of every field and equal pay, and I realize this is a very incomplete revolution, the third women's revolution that is critically important right now is changing the world in which women are participating and competing. it's not enough anymore to say I want to have 50% of the top jobs in the world when the world is not working the way it's designed by men. It's not working for women. It's not working for men. It's not working for polar bears. And, and I think women have to take the lead in changing it with the help of many good men because it's particularly not working for women. We have stats that show that women in stressful jobs have a 40% greater incidence of heart disease, and 60% greater threat of diabetes because of the way we internalize stress.
0: Mm -hmm. And seeing, as you have in your position, what the different levers are that could create dramatic changes in the world, in the system that we're all living in, what do you think are those most important levers that women can pull, that women can focus on to create these kinds of changes?
1: Well, first of all, um, depending on where they are in the workplace, if they are able to make changes um, to do so. I mean, I made a lot of changes at Half Post. People know that they're not expected to be on email or answer work emails after hours or over the weekend, unless that's their shift. We have um, regular meditation, yoga, breathing classes, healthy snacks, the nap rooms, and, and a sense that we value everyone. For much more than their job that they are doing at half post and and what I want to stress is what is good for employees is good for half post and more and more companies are identifying that and and realizing that that what is good for their employees is good for the bottom line
0: Mm-hmm. so making changes in the workplace where you find yourself whatever role you have in that particular workplace.
1: Exactly. And if uh, um, if you're in an, an unpleasant work environment, if you can't change jobs for economic realities at that moment, then to just uh, create your own little support group within that environment and create certain boundaries and, and uh, show how much you can get done uh, without hurting yourself and your relationships.
0: So I want to make sure I understand what you mean by the third women's revolution, because I'm not quite sure I'm clear on it. So women at this time would be focused on changing cultural norms that aren't good for any of us. Is that what you mean?
1: Yes, exactly. They're definitely not good for men, too. I mean, look at the price that men pay um, with heart attacks and ulcers and blood high blood pressure in their fifties and 60s
0: Mm-hmm. And that we can change these cultural norms by being outspoken and making sure that we're living what you might call third metric lives?
1: Yes, and by actually um, being able to prioritize that and to define success differently for ourselves, uh, that that will have a dramatic impact.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Ariana, when the Huffington Post was purchased by AOL, did you feel that you have to compromise the culture in any way now that you're part of AOL?
1: Oh, not at all. No, I think, it's been great for our culture because uh, all the things that we wanted to do uh, grow internationally. We are now in 11 countries, and we were only in the U.S. when AOL bought the Huffington Post. Um, we are um, um, now um, a major platform for all these, uh, for all these ideas when HuffPost was bought by O.L., we're still primarily on politics and news side. Now we have over 70 sections. Uh, um, sections on the third metric, issues, healthy living, uh, have last month surpassed our politics sections in traffic. Um, we, we launched a big streaming video network. None of that would have happened without the support and resources that O.L. Uh, brought into half-post.
0: And there's no sense that the focus of a company like AOL on financial return creates any compromise in how the culture is handled?
1: Um, not at all, no. I mean, we've been there for three years, so we have plenty of evidence that that hasn't happened.
0: So it seems like that Is a myth then, certainly a myth that I've been subject to believe in, that if you take a small company that's very values-driven and make it part of a larger company that is potentially focused more on short-term financial results, that there will be compromises involved? I think you're saying from your experience that hasn't been the
1: case. I think it all depends. I'm sure there are many other cases where that happened exactly as you describe it, but um, we were very determined it wouldn't happen, and that was part of our agreement before the acquisition.
0: Uh-huh. That you would maintain control of some of the key cultural variables, that kind of thing?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to go back to this really, in many ways, central point, I feel, which is this ability that you're cultivating and that you're prioritizing in this third metric work, which is to be present, this quality of presence. And I'm curious when you feel that something difficult is happening in your life, like maybe some attack on you in the press or some negative press or criticism. How do you maintain that quality of presence when things like that are happening?
1: Oh, I think that's actually a very good barometer of where I am in my own journey, whether I can uh, um, basically not allow... um, Things that happen that I consider unfair, or um, things that could uh, throw me off center to do so, and if I if they do throw me off center, to my role model is is a child. The way a child reacts to being upset, and then two minutes later it's gone. You know I don't believe in in growing a thick skin. I believe in being permeable. You know you get upset and then you let the upset go through you and then out of you.
0: Mhm. And when you have a sense that perhaps you're not spending your time the way that you could be or oh this could be a waste of my time. What am I doing? This is not really the right way I could be spending my time. How do you stay present in those situations?
1: Well, I think first of all, I think it's important to 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 see how how much you can change your schedule so you don't have as many of the situations as uh, you used to have, although all of us have things that we have to do that in our jobs, which are not our favorite things. And um, and then I think there's a lot we can do even in a board meeting, you know, um, like um, our breathing exercises or... Um, connecting with ourselves in a way beyond um, whatever boring PowerPoint you may be watching.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're saying no matter what situation you're in, there's a way that you could find a way to make it nourishing, potentially, if you can't change it. Not always,
1: of course. I'm not saying that that's always possible. But then um, allowing ourselves nourishing time After draining times, I mean, we all have a mixture. We're not going to suddenly eliminate those times. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, Ariana, just one final topic I'd like to talk with you about. In the Thrive book, in the section on wisdom, one of the four pillars of this third metric, you talk about how it's possible when we have periods of time in our life where we're suffering that we can find an alchemy, is the word you use, in suffering. That it's possible to find a way to make meaning, wisdom, and strength out of our suffering. And I'm wondering if you could share with us how perhaps in your own life things have happened to you that you would say this was a period of suffering, but it turned into wisdom and strength.
1: I think definitely when my daughter um, got involved in drugs and uh, I got that call that um, every parent dreads, you know, Mommy, I can't breathe. And there was that drive from um, New York to New Haven where she was two months away from graduating at Yale. Um, And then the weeks and months that followed, mercifully she's been sober for two years now, all that was um, a moment of pain and uh, challenge. And I feel that the work I had done on myself since 2007 made it easier for me to focus on all the things I was grateful for, like the fact that she was alive, the fact that she wanted to get well, the fact that she had a loving family that had rallied around her.
0: hmm Mm-hmm. So in that period of suffering, you were still able to touch a sense of gratitude even in the midst of
1: it? Yes, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, Ariana, my final question. Redefining success, it's about these new priorities. And I'm curious if you were to list right now in your life your top three priorities. I imagine one of them is gonna be sleep, but maybe not, let's see. Your top three priorities for you, really, truly, right now in your life, what would you say they are?
1: Um, You know, I've actually included them all at the end of each chapter because I wanted to, to include these small steps that I took and that all of us can take so that we can move from theory, you know, we can move from, yes, I agree with that, to actually crossing that bridge to to transforming our lives. And we won't have time to go through all of them, but at the end of the um, well-being chapter, I would say that um, probably the most important thing beyond sleep is introducing even five minutes of meditation into our day. And eventually we can build up to 15, 20, or a lot more. But even just a few minutes, will open the door to creating a new habit. And all the many proven benefits that it brings. And uh, when it comes to wisdom, um, uh, beyond the, the gratitude list that I believe in and listening to our inner wisdom and letting go of things that don't serve us, um, I think the most immediate um, point that I've, I've, I've. I've religiously introduced into my life and I recommend to everyone is to have a specific time at night when we regularly turn off our devices and gently escort them out of our bedroom. I can't say enough about that (laughs) Um, and in terms of wonder I think forgiveness is key to being able to be present in life and experience the wonder at its mystery forgiving ourselves for any judgments we are holding against ourselves and any judgments that we are holding of others. And I always, when I find that hard, I always think to myself that if Nelson Mandela can do it, so can I. And and finally, at the end of the giving section, um, again, I recommend starting with very small gestures of kindness and giving. And for me, the most important thing has been just making personal connections with people that you might normally tend to pass by and take for granted, you know, the checkout clock, the cleaning crew at your office or your hotel, the barista in the coffee shop. It's amazing how much this helps us feel more alive and reconnected to the moment.
0: Ariana, thank you so much for being willing to bring your time and your presence and your love and your priorities to our program, Insights at the Edge. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. It is a real
0: pleasure. Ariana Huffington, the author of a new book called Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. She's also hosting a series of live events. The first one is taking place in New York City, April 24th to the 25th, a third metric live event on redefining success which will feature thought leaders from different fields including the world of entertainment, fashion politics and technology and if you're interested you can visit the website thirdmetriclive.com and as a listener to Sounds True's Insights at the Edge if you're interested in attending you can receive a $50 discount on the ticket price by entering the code ST. So that's thirdmetriclive.com, and you can use a code ST50 for a $50 discount. Again, Ariana, thank you, and good luck today on The Ellen Show.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Spirituality and Health Magazine. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.